The following content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Hello and welcome everyone to Always Another Way podcast. My name is Marina Sprocky Spriggs and I'm the host of your show. I have a master's in professional counseling and I am the Ippy award-winning author of Stop Looking for a Husband, Find the Love of Your Life, and Nasty Divorce, A Kid's Eye View. I've been writing positive divorce advice for the HuffPost since 2012 and I'm trained in clinical hypnosis. And this podcast speaks to out-of-the-box thinkers. It's for those who hear the call of hope and always another way. And if you are very rigid and set in your beliefs, then this probably isn't your cup of tea. However, you should note, taste can and do change. And I want to, again, thank everybody for listening to this podcast and put a big push out. If I could get 10 people to subscribe and rate on iTunes, that could bring us to the next level and push this podcast up so that everyone can hear all of the great guests that I have on. And today, especially exciting, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics, which um, is actually in, you know, that little intro that I say about always another way, because I do believe in, and have believed since I was a little child that there is another way to do something. There's another way to do things. There's another way out, another way somewhere which I guess I never really thought about it until I started reading this book. But essentially, that's for sure resilience. Um, there's nothing that I think is the end of something. There's, there's another way. And so um, that's what we're going to be talking today about resilience. And the book is called Resilience, The Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. And we have one of the authors on the show today, Dr. Stephen Southwick. He received an MD from George Washington Medical School in 1980. He completed a psychiatry, uh, psychiatry residence, I was trying to make a new word there, at Yale University School of Medicine. He's the Glenn H. Greenberg Professor of Psychiatry, PTSD and Resilience at Yale University Medical School and a Yale Child Study Center. Medical Director of the Clinical Neuroscience Diversion of the Veterans Affairs National Center for PTSD an adjunct professor of psychiatry, Mount Sinai School of Medicine. His interests include the psychology and neurobiology of psychological trauma, PTSD, and resilience to stress. He has worked with a wide range of trauma survivors, including combat veterans, civilian children and adults with PTSD, and very high-functioning, stress-resilient former prisoners of war and active-duty special forces soldiers and Navy SEALs. And um, so welcome to the show, Dr. Southwick. Well, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on the show. Yes, and um, this is—I'm—I'm I'm a trauma therapist too, so I love um, working with people with 
PTSD and kinds of trauma and resilience. But this is, um, this is actually your second book on resilience and you've been studying this a lot longer than I have. Um, but what prompted you to kind of get into this field or what first grabbed you about resilience to study it? Well, my colleague, uh, Dennis Charney and I, and others had been studying post-traumatic stress disorder and working with trauma survivors clinically uh, for many years. And maybe 15 or 20 years ago, we decided to look at resilience and, and how to build resilience. And in most of psychological and psychiatric practice, we look at symptoms, uh, negative symptoms, if you will, and we try to help the individual with those symptoms, which is extremely important. But we tend not to focus on building other sorts of strengths at the same time. And we began by deciding, let's look at highly resilient individuals. Uh, let's start there. So we interviewed a large number of former prisoners of war from Vietnam. We decided to also interview special forces instructors because we thought, well, these instructors surely know how to teach others about physical and emotional resilience. And then we also interviewed a large number of civilian men, women, and children who had been through very trying circumstances and were uh, functioning very well nevertheless. And uh, what we noticed in these in-depth interviews, we kept hearing the same themes over and over again. And so uh, and we came up with 10 themes, there could be more, but this is what we heard. And we went to the psychological literature, science literature, and the neuroscience literature, since we do a lot of neuroscience research, and found a great deal of support for each of these, what we call, factors that are associated with resilience. So that's, that's how we got started. That sounds awesome, and I love, and this book really is, it's just chock full of research, lots of great different stories interspersed in about some of the different people and their resilience stuff. And, um, and there's also, so with that, and we'll kind of come back to what those factors are um, in kind of helping people, but there's also too, like, so I was wondering, you know, and then maybe the science of resilience, you know, I think that my baseline is maybe slightly more resilient just in my thought process, not that I have definitely been, you know, in the down in the dumps area and feeling like, eh, you know, oh no, and super sad. But, you know, some little spark of resilience is always in me. And you mm -hmm. do a little bit of this genetic. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what the genetics say about resilience? Well, this is actually a fairly, a very complex topic uh, and one that hasn't really been studied enough. Uh, genetics are very, very uh, complex because many genes are interacting together uh, to influence different traits or uh, moods or so forth. But there's no question that, that, um, that genes and environment contribute to resilience and that we each inherit variations in our genes that affect the way we respond to stress. And you might look, for example, at the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight-flight adrenaline system. And you might look at the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is the cortisol system, both critical for dealing with stress. And we each inherit 
or we may inherit variations of uh, uh, different genes that regulate those systems. An example would be uh, someone might inherit a variation of what's called the alpha-2 uh, adenoreceptor gene, and that helps to determine how high your baseline noradrenaline is, just a baseline, and noradrenaline is critical for the fight-flight response. And it also uh, helps to determine how high your norepinephrine, your noradrenaline rises uh, during a stressful situation and how rapidly it comes back to baseline. Uh, and th these are very important because you want to have a robust response, adrenaline, noradrenaline response to stress, but you, but you don't want it to be too robust and you want to be able to bring it back to baseline quickly. So it's possible that one, one of the variations of, uh, of this gene might make someone somewhat more vulnerable to stress. And another related example is neuropeptide Y, which is um, a neuropeptide that is released under high stress. And one of the things it does is it helps to bring your stress response back to baseline. So there are different variations of this gene and some, at least one variation, uh, the individual tends not to produce as much, much neuropeptide Y so that it may make it more difficult to bring the stress response back to baseline. And a big part of resilience is actually learning how to recover. So if, you, if it's okay, I'll, let me tell you just a brief yeah. vignette that comes from a wonderful book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it's by Robert Sapolsky, who's a brilliant researcher at Stanford. Great. So when a zebra gets chased by a lion, it has a huge stress response, adrenaline, noradrenaline, and so forth. And that's good. It helps get out of danger. But as soon as it's out of danger, the stress response generally comes back to baseline very quickly. And that's, that's good. But with humans, because we have this uh, advanced brain with a prefrontal cortex that allows us to ruminate and anticipate, we might say, oh my gosh, I almost got eaten by a lion, I almost got eaten by a lion, and we might anticipate, oh my gosh, what happens if I see a lion again, if I see a lion again, and we can keep ourselves, as I think most of us know, uh, stressed 24-7. Yeah. So a, a big part of resilience, which we learned over time, we don't think we came in fully understanding this, is not only training to get what's called stress inoculation, you know, training, uh, training in an activity or a, a behavior or a skill, and then gradually increasing uh, how challenging it is, just like running a marathon, maybe I'll run a mile the first time, and then two, three, four, and I get what's called stress inoculated. That's really important. But learning to recover is also very important with regard to resilience. For example, if I want stronger biceps, I don't lift weights two days in a row because it's not going to help or it's going to damage the muscles. So it's both how you train uh, to increase your capacity, but it's equally important to systematically uh, understand how to recover. Yes. And the and genes, by the way, and so there are, 
there are different genes that affect the sympathetic nervous system, the adrenaline noradrenaline system, and the, and the cortisol systems, and, and many other systems. But I want to make it really clear that genes are not destiny. Of course. Genes are important, but anyone, virtually anyone, can learn to be more resilient. And much of resilient, the way we see it, Dennis Charney, myself, and others, we see resilience largely as, as a set of skills uh, that, that can, to a good degree, be learned. Well, yeah, let's talk about that neuroplasticity. Brain can change, so always things to do. Yes, and that's one of the exciting uh, sort of discoveries uh, in the relatively recent scientific past. In the past, um, scientists believed that we inherited a certain number of neurons in the brain and they would slowly die off uh, over time. But it's become very clear that that we can that that our nervous system is changing moment by moment uh, hour by hour day by day and the brain can be strengthened or weakened depending on how we use it and the old term use it or lose it so by practicing let's say learning to meditate and really being consistent and practicing i am actually changing the structure and function and the connections in my brain. There's some fascinating studies looking at musicians. So for example, violin players who are right-handed use the fingers on their left hand on the bow of the violin much more than the fingers on their right hand. And if you look at the areas of the brain that's devoted to moving fingers, in violin players who are very experienced, the area of the brain devoted to moving the fingers on the left hand, this is in right-handers, left hand is considerably larger, noticeably larger than the area of the brain devoted to moving the fingers on the right hand because that individual has used those fingers much more often. So we're, we're not, we, we, can, we, we can change the structure and function of our brain largely through practice and it's always great if it's consistent practice doing it essentially the same way i love it and speaking of that since we know that we can change and we can do things you have um you know 10 things in the book but could you maybe highlight maybe two of your favorite things sure that people can do to increase um, resilience i i i personally think that one of the most important factors in living a resilient life is having a very strong social network. And uh, I, we learned this through many interviews uh, with the individuals I was describing. And for example, the prisoners of war who we interviewed would say that their social connection with other prisoners was absolutely life-saving. So they developed an ingenious system of tapping on the walls of the prison, uh, much like the, ta- like the uh, Morse code, which allowed them to stay in touch with one another and to pass orders uh, uh, from one soldier to the next. 
so that there was a unified mission and uh, kept their kept them really alive emotionally. And there's a huge literature on social connectedness and how important it is. Yeah. And people who are tend to be isolated or don't have very good social networks, that lack of social support can be as toxic to our health and how long we live as obesity, cigarette smoking, a sedentary lifestyle, uh, it's, it's really bad for your health. Yeah, loneliness on the other, is a killer. On the other hand, high social connectedness is very, very helpful. And, and one of the interesting things that we've learned recently, or I've learned recently, is that the brain probably evolved uh, in a way that makes us, that rewards us for staying together. Because you know, our ancestors, if they wandered off or were extruded from the group, they were not likely to survive and pass their genes on. So the brain is constructed in such a way now that rejection or the threat of being um, uh, extruded activates many of the same areas of the brain that are activated during threat and danger and fear. And some of the same areas uh, of the brain that are activated during physical pain are also activated during, quote, social pain. So the brain has evolved in a way that rejection, even the slightest hidden rejection, really, really hurts. So with the possible intent, if you will, of not uh, being alone and away from the group. And all I can tell you is that uh, the, the, the highly resilient people we interviewed, the Special Forces, for example, if you ask a Special Forces soldier or you might mention, this is, this is our experience anyway. Gee, you know, you, you, you're involved in many brave activities. Uh, how do you do it? And, and many would say, well, it's not me that's brave, it's my group. Because when people have your back and you can count on them, you become more of an active coper, you have increased self-esteem, increased uh, self-efficacy, uh, you, you have feel as if you have more control in your life, and it, it, it makes a great deal. So one of the first things that we recommend when we meet with someone who's seeking assistance, we say, let's take a good look at your social network. Let's draw a map of who's in your life. Who do you contact or who are you in touch with on a regular basis? Are there people that, that who would drop everything and help you if you really needed it? And are there people that you would do the same for? Because giving social support, it turns out, is just as, just as important for well-being and resilience as is receiving social support and maybe even more. So, uh, so this, this is one of my uh, favorites, if you will, and uh, I very, very much believe in fostering, working on, ahead of time if you can, uh, ahead of trouble, uh, have that network, and do not be afraid to reach out to others. Right. It seems scary at first, but people are usually a little bit more accepting when you actually ask them. Most people. They are. Yeah. yeah. And so... You know, you know another, another factor that you mentioned, which I think is really interesting, is this idea of learning to reappraise threats 
has a challenge. Yeah. So, you know, the, as you said, you're always looking for another way. And that a part of that uh, may well involve learning how to understand what is and is not under your control. So acceptance, we noticed that acceptance is very important. So what, what can I really control and what can I not? Because there's usually quite a bit that I can control. At the very least, uh, hopefully, I can control my attitude mm -hmm. toward a situation. I mean, it's really, really hard, but I may not be able to uh, control you know, fate or the circumstances, but hopefully I can, at least to some degree, control my attitude. And as you said, is there, is there some opportunity in this adversity? Is there another way that I can look at this? And we typically, we think of a threat is when we believe that we really cannot exceed or, or, or we cannot manage the situation. But we view it as a challenge if we think, you know, I have the resources to do this. And the ability to find opportunity in adversity, to focus on not just what is lost, but also what is left, and there's usually a lot that's left, uh, I think is a very substantial part of resilience. Right, I do too. And so like, and maybe just like to piggyback that, but ask something else. So if, if you could give a little bit more of our listeners some advice on life and resilience, like what do you do when actually like life hits you personally? And cause some right. things are like, you know, all the list, but then as we all know, we're all human and sometimes you get in it and can still have a chance to, sometimes I get off on rumination tracks and then got to reel it back in. What do you yeah. do personally? Well, I, uh, a full disclosure, um, you don't have to be a great swimming coach to be a great swimmer. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, you don't have to be a, a, a great swimming coach to be a great swimmer. Anyway, that's by way of saying, I don't pretend to be uh, overly resilient, but I do, um, I do feel that, uh, I, I feel very privileged, to be honest, to have had the opportunity and continue to have the opportunity to get to know uh, a high number of very resilient individuals. And they, and I would recommend this as well, they become role models. And uh, you, you mentioned uh, stories, some pretty gripping stories in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and really what we tried to do is we tried to have the people we interviewed teach the reader and essentially get out of the way and listen to their advice as to you know, how they deal with adversity. And so the, your, the answer to your question is, I think about it a lot. I, 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 I think about these role models. They often come to mind, even when I don't intend for them to come to mind, because I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about resilience. So uh, an example is we interviewed this remarkable 17-year-old girl who was born with a serious neurologic disorder, but she ended up, she's amazingly optimistic. She ended up valedictorian of her high school class. She won a whole host of medals in, uh, in Special Olympics swimming. 
She was early acceptance at Yale University, was on the Yale University swim team, which is uh, unheard of with this sort of a disability. She graduated summa cum laude, et cetera, et cetera. Well, in high school, for practice, she swam 26 miles a week, 26 miles. So for me, I like to exercise. I know exercise is a great way to enhance resilience, both emotional and physical. So let's say I'm swimming and I might say, I'm gonna swim a mile. And I get to about a half mile, two thirds of a mile, and I think, well, you know, that's, that's, that's enough. You know, I've, I've had enough. And then I'm a little tired, whatever. And then this young woman comes to mind. And I think, you gotta be kidding. She can do 26 miles a week and you can't even finish one mile. And that helps to push me on. And honestly, there are so many role models in this book for me, I feel blessed. So that, that's one of the ways. Um, because I, you know, and, and what you said is very important. I think most of us have an initial reaction. The initial reaction might be, oh no, I can't do this or whatever. But through mindfulness, through having thought about this, through practicing, through training, I personally, and I think many people, am able to counter that much more rapidly than I used to be able to and say, no, wait a minute, I can handle this. Or let me think, let me figure out how to handle this. Not just, what was me, this is all, blah, 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 blah. But let me, let me be an active coper, for example. Let me problem solve. Let me, rather than run away from this and avoid it, if it's fearful, let me face it. Not easy, but running away does not work. Never works. No, it'll at catch the, you. At the, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. I said it'll catch you if you it run away. It catches you, and, and actually avoidance is at the heart of all of the anxiety disorders, like panic disorder and PTSD, which used to be called an anxiety disorder. I still think it is. It's, it's really the inability or the, and it's very natural, we all do this, you don't want to, uh, you don't want to be afraid, so you try to avoid those things, but it does not work because the way people succeed with fear is to uh, live with it, face it, and extinguish it. So I, I'm, I'm a big believer in mindfulness, uh, a form of meditation, and one of my favorite uh, Buddhist teachers is a gentleman, Thich Nhat Hanh, who was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize by Martin Luther, Luther King. And what he might say about, and I think these, these are the sorts of things that come to mind. Yeah, I get afraid, and my initial reaction is, oh no, let me go hide. But then these, these people and these ideas and so forth, and the more you practice, the better you get, come to mind. And Thich Nhat Hanh might say, I'm not gonna run from fear, instead might say, Hello, fear. I know you. I am going to welcome you. I am going to. I am going to take care of you, like a mother takes care of her child. That's the exact opposite of avoidance. Now, this my natural tendency is to avoid in certain situations, but I do it less than I used to because I have these wonderful role models. I love that. 
And I love Maya, some Thich Nhat Hanh, the Peace in Every Step book of his is really good yes. too. And um, yeah, super, super, super good advice. And, um, and knowing that you can always just keep building up resilience. And even if, you know, it gets in that initial, like most people do, the, the initial freak out, which, you know, comes probably naturally for a lot of people, but that pause to step back and then, you know, at least for me, I do the same thing you do. I look at other people who have done stuff that, you know, maybe have more uh, hurdles to jump than I do and have gotten somewhere. And then just the fact that, you know, if we're living and breathing right now, you've survived everything up until this point. So 100% on that one. Yeah, and you know, um, we all are much more resilient than we know. Yeah. And ev ev uh, evolutionary biologists would say, well, look, I mean, the human beings alive today have evolved through all sorts of, you know, difficult, trying circumstances and so forth. And there's a, there's a wonderful book by Anne Maston, who's a professor at the University of Minnesota, developmental psychologist, and it's called Ordinary Magic. Mm -hmm. And I believe what Anne is referring to is that each of us, and she's talking about children, but each of us has a magic. We are much more resilient than we know. And sometimes it's important to, as you were saying, stop and look for that resilience you know get familiar with the strength inside of you because you can do it often much in much uh, much in a much better fashion than you at first imagined and I, I do believe that this practicing of mindfulness and so forth certainly has made a big difference in my life because i still have the same initial reaction but i get out of you know fear or whatever much more rapidly so I can move on with something constructive. Oh, great. I've been doing some mindfulness and meditation for quite a while now, and just it really has changed my life, too, and yeah. in lots better ways. So um, where can our um, our listeners, you know, find you now and get your book, and if you have any book tours or anything else going on that we can find you? Uh, no book tours, um, but um, probably Amazon or pretty much anywhere like that. Um, and it's um i got i must say it's it's a wonderful topic as i said i feel very blessed to uh have the opportunity to become immersed in this topic um and and one thing we didn't talk about this really quickly is sure. the importance and the power of having a mission meaning and purpose and that's something that i've really gravitated toward in recent years victor frankel yeah. for anybody out there who wants to read a great book uh, Man's Search for Meaning, oh, yeah. uh, Victor Frankl, Holocaust Survivor, and that's all tied in too. So, you know what, I guess Frankl would say, and I think what resilience is about, it, does, it doesn't matter what your station in life is, it doesn't matter what your occupation is. To live a meaningful life, Frankl might say, you do the best you can with what you've got. And that, I think, learning something about different way to enhance resilience will help us all to do the best we can with what we've got. Yeah. And what just a, a wonderful way to end this. And just, I just super highly recommend this book because you will just find all these stories just super inspiring and just lots of great useful information you can use to build resilience. It's 
super inspiring and it's just such a pleasure to talk to you about this. I love just the research and the work that you're doing. And, um, and also what a great, just like topic to talk about with other people, how you do things and, and get in groups and support each other. Cause yeah. I do believe that we're all connected. Yes. Well, thank you again, Dr. Southwick for being on the show and for all of you listening, you know that there is always another way. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks.